0: And welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Sherston Carlson to tell us about her book titled The Justice Laboratory, International Law in Africa, which is really interesting because it combines a lot of things that I think we hear about in the news, you know, international law, international criminal court. Ooh, there's lots of things happening in Africa. Mm, There's lots of wars there where my own research is. but actually kind of putting these things together and interrogating them properly and not assuming that sort of something based somewhere like The Hague or New York or Geneva is kind of where all the interesting innovation happens is a very useful intervention into the field. Um, so this book does that and much more. So, Sherston, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: And thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a little bit and explain
1: why you decided to write this book? Oh, with pleasure. Thanks. Yeah. So I'm Sherston Carlson. I'm a professor in Denmark, uh, but I'm originally an American. So I'm sort of one of these transplants. And I now work at a liberal arts university, state-run university called Roskilde University, right outside of Copenhagen, and then teach in the summers at the American University of Paris. So this kind of, again, liberal arts institution. And in Denmark, there's a big uh, division between how law is considered, law as a kind of professional degree, and then other forms of knowledge, so the social sciences. And I think um, drawing on my American liberal arts background, where I, I am also a lawyer, but I did a PhD in law and society, I really enjoy the challenge of trying to broaden the conversations we can have about law in what I think is a place that is less inclined to have those conversations. So in, I guess I would say my day job is working on uh, creating a sociology of law, a law and society space for conversation, which in many ways leads to the book, which is why I wrote the book. At my last job, um, we were, I was part of a research center and we were trying to kind of get um, members of the research center, have the books get off the ground. And the idea was, and you'll laugh at this, uh, Oh, uh, what's something you could write quickly? Won't take but a moment. <laughs> something you know inside and out that, um, yes, and of course, yes, five years later, here's this book. I wrote it in my sleep. The elves were not very useful. Um, uh, but so the idea was that at that time I was teaching in a, a master's program that was combining sort of more your topic, which is this question of laws of war, war, uh, uh, law, and international relations. And It seemed that there was a lot of specialized legal knowledge that people needed to have a piece of that felt really hard to grapple with, and yet was essential for them to be able to have interesting conversations and to move forward in the sort of research they wanted to do. So I thought, oh, well, I'm teaching these things, uh, and I've been doing a lot of research in Africa. Let me put together a book which is basically built around the question of what what kind of opportunities does law or do courts offer when politics fail right so you're trying to make some political ar- arrangement or there's some majority that's doing great but you're part of a minority and you don't like it so what what tools does law offer and why should we in democratic societies be interested in what these anti-democratic institutions courts have to say for us like what how should we see? this question uh, or these tools, these instruments as something that can further sometimes a parallel conversation, sometimes an intersecting conversation with the ways that we structure power, particularly in the field of international relations. So I set out to, you know, easily in just a just a few days, write up some of the things I knew. And it, it was in many ways, this book was challenging because it felt like a lot of what I was writing about was stuff that I almost felt I had no business writing about. Am am I an expert in this? I I know something that regular people don't know. But then there are people who have great expertise who look at specific facets of this. And that's not where I want to go. So I was trying to write this generalist book for our undergraduate and graduate students. So for regular people, again, about the role of courts in international law about the place of international law and international politics. So again, all of the things that were supposed to be easy as part of this research center. I changed jobs. I kept going with the book. And the book was also in some ways challenging to write because it had to go through peer review. So it had to be, it was always designed for a general audience. It was always designed to hopefully have an interesting set of generalizable conversations about very specific courts, very specific circumstances. Um, Again, from a point of view that maybe a specialist would say, "Uh uh-huh, yes, but a generalist wouldn't know that that exists. And I I thought that managing the peer review process of that was also sort of difficult. Um, Uh, Anyway, so that was the process of how I wrote the book.
0: (laughs) Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, I think it highlights a whole number of things uh, (laughs) about the content and the process that Mm. are intriguing and I think probably familiar to many of us in the audience. Um, So with that as our kind of overview of the goal of the book, I'd like to kind of Talk a bit about the decisions you made of actually putting this together, because with that kind of goal of making this more accessible to a general audience, I mean, there are so many directions that this could go in, right? There's so many examples you could draw on. So can you briefly tell us which case studies you examined in the book and how you chose these?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there are five chapters in the book, which effectively are sort of five case studies, and the big driving force behind the book was sort of some beef I had with the International Criminal Court. And this was beef that arose. And I'm a my dissertation, my first books um, and articles were on international criminal law. And I, I'm a bit of a twail scholar, I would say. So I've been looking at the former Yugoslavia and the, the law that had emerged from the ICTY tribunal. And so I had turned to the ICC, and then uh, and as a postdoc, um, and felt like I was again coming in late. It was a time when the ICC was getting off the ground. All the cases were against Africa. Should we understand this as colonial? Um, what what role can criticism play? And then I was invited. Uh, A beautiful lark, a friend, a colleague at the American University of Paris, um, suggested to the State Department that I be a speaker in a presentation made to the African Union about the power and potential of international criminal law. And I thought, well, this is a strange thing for me to have to do. I'm very critical of this. And as I was presenting, I was getting the speech ready. There was a wonderful moment where the State Department spokesman looked at it and said, please begin your speech by noting that as an American with free speech rights, you do not represent the interests of the State Department. And I thought, OK, that's a good place to start. Um, they're very confident. But in preparing what I wanted to say about the International Criminal Court for uh, for a, a kind of a group of um, representatives at the African Union, I realized that that court Isn't just something one can be critical about. Like I had been sitting there in my little ivory tower, throwing my stones about the imperfection of how international criminal law is constructed. But in fact, the ICC actually is independent of the UN Security Council. That's not the way the U.S. wanted it to be. But Canada, sorry, Canada and some other um, Canada and some other countries managed to. Uh, sort of make a workaround. So you actually have an institution which has the potential to do something that doesn't exist in the world. So sure, it's flawed. Sure, it's problematic. Uh, There's an argument to be made about how it is um, an element of a a colonizing series of, of power structures. All those things are true, but you might not get anything better. So I ended up giving this talk about the potential, how one could see the potential of this institution. And that really changed my, it changed my take on the ICC, and I wanted to somehow reflect that. So the first chapter of the book is all about the International Criminal Court, and it looks at the International Criminal Court as this flawed but promising institution, and wants to sort of illuminate, use what it is that I know about international criminal law, the kind of the conceptual flaws about making a law which isn't guided or girded by any kind of political constraint. So that law ends up being problematic, while at the same time, having a lot of potential. So that was the, in a sense, that was the impetus for the book. So when I would um, sometimes despair, as you know, as it wasn't written in the first 30 days, or whatever it was that it was supposed to to do, I thought, no, this this is an interesting story about how it is that the ICC was created, and how the interests of certain African leaders aligned with the institutional interests of the court to have work to create a caseload that ended up making international criminal law, making precedent, having cases, but not really doing the justice work that had been the hope of I think many people who were behind the ICC when it started. So that um, that's kind of the longest chapter in the book, and I wanted to there. One of the things I always tell my students is international law. And international criminal law also. It's written in English. It's all free online. So it's a good place to dig in and do research and look at things. It's not hard to get the materials. So since this is one of my kind of hobby horses that we cannot leave law to the lawyers, we need to get in there and read it ourselves. I spend some time in that chapter going through those cases. What should we see? What's at play here? And what are the concepts and the ideas that emerge from the jurisprudence that's produced by the court? and then the other four chapters were to a certain degree and this was also as the court as the book went through peer review you know one of the questions was uh how did you choose these examples and that's always this tricky thing like um is there, is there actually a rationale for how i chose the examples it's clearly not good enough to say I found it interesting, or I was there already, um, but in fact, I had done a bunch of work on this um, hybrid tribunal that was set up in in Senegal. So one of the chapters addresses that. It's a little known tribunal. It's really interesting. It arguably did something that everyone said was impossible. It put a former dictator, the head of Chad, Ysan Ambre, It put him on trial. It convicted him. It did it for $10 million. Uh, Nobody died in the process, which is to say no witnesses were killed. Um, There was no no terrible corruption along the way. So everything worked. Um, The problem with that tribunal was that it only got abré. So you could say, and I do say, uh, the argument I make in that chapter is that you have this interesting institutional setup with all sorts of things to celebrate. But then ultimately, you can't take on the question of what does corrupted power in Chad look like? What kind of responsibilities do you insist on for the state? In fact, you get this one ex-dictator who arguably is by this time living as a private citizen in the most cynical reading, like he's used up all the money that he had. So not even Senegal wants to protect him anymore. That's a very cynical reading, but um, but it's not non, uh, non-available. Uh, I wanted to look at Rwanda because there's so much amazing area scholarship written about Rwanda and the failure of international criminal justice to bequeath all the things that were hoped for it, that were written about what it could do in Rwanda. But I feel like it doesn't often get out of that sphere of area studies, African studies, or even Rwanda area studies. So my Rwanda chapter is really, um, it's in a sense, it's a literature review of if you were going to read a bunch of very smart people about Rwanda, you would learn this. Um, and that that was also a fun chapter to write in many ways. At some level, it really begs the question, what business do I have to be doing this? But it um, I presented it at conferences and it used to, it really got lots of reactions. Uh, it made some people mad. So it was interesting to see what happened with that chapter. And then also, um, as the book was going through review, many of the reviewers um, were actually really delighted by that chapter. Like It makes sense of something that we didn't know. Uh, And there, it's a discussion of, we, we know about one Rwanda genocide. There's arguably a second Rwanda genocide, if not a genocide, certainly a mass killing that's effectuated by Kagame under his leadership over a long period of time. And and that story doesn't get told, and is actually so politically um, so politically contentious that people die for trying to tell it. Um, and so that seemed like an essential and important thing to try and make available to people. That again is is normalized in area scholarship. There's no question but that this is what's happening. But it's not what you can find in the mainstream. Then the South Sudan chapter was looking at, in, in a sense, it was trying to test this model for development and transitional justice. Um, and they're looking at the idea of setting up a court that's been promised, but absolutely no one intends to set up. So what's going on there? And that gave me a chance to go and talk to diplomats, a lot of diplomats in uh, at the African Union and people who are working in development in uh across Africa in various places. So that it was sort of nice to to have the chance to talk to people on the ground, to sort of ask the question, if no one thinks this will happen, then why are we working towards it? Um, and then finally, I, I felt like there was, I, I had not intended to write a book. I really did not want the book at all to suggest that um, we should despair about the state of law in Africa. Instead, I wanted to show the complexity and interest and creativity uh, even in even when you're dissatisfied we can be dissatisfied with what the icc is doing in africa but we have to respect the ways in which african politicians and groups have managed to see what makes that institution tick and use it to their own advantage you know they that's it's politically very sophisticated so although so i wanted to tell the story of political so- sophistication i wanted to make clear things that are Again, I think not generally known to a mainstream audience, uh, but I didn't want everything to only be kind of doom and gloom. So it's always this. I always laugh because I would describe myself as a progressive, a progressive human rights oriented person on the left. And yet I always find myself railing against these institutions that are developed by my friends. Right. So. Uh, what does one do in this situation? And the East African Court of Justice was doing some pretty creative, interesting human rights work even though it's a trade court. So the final chapter, and this I had found out about because there was a PhD at the place where I was postdoc who was writing on this. So he had made me aware of that court. Then I had gone and done some interviews um, and that just seemed like such an interesting case study. So it in some ways begs the very questions that uh, animate the whole book, which is okay. We want law to work in parallel with, but as a counterweight to political influence. So when we have a trade court, that makes human rights decisions that we who like human rights are happy with, we celebrate it. But otherwise we might say, oh, this activist crazy court is working outside of its jurisdiction and its competence. So, and we don't have an answer for that. So that I wanted to tell the story of what the court's doing, because from a human rights perspective, it is, it's a hopeful story, but it still brings us back to the, again, the kind of the larger question that drives the book, which is, What's the role of law in terms of how we make an alternative narrative to politics and where should the limitations run?
0: I have already planned what I'm going to ask you next, but (laughs) I'm really glad I did, because if I hadn't, I would have been like, wait, those are so many interesting threads to pull on. How do I possibly choose where to start? Um, So thank you very much for that explanation of what the book is doing and why. Um, I think that's an incredibly helpful foundation and I am going to now ask you about them in more detail, pretty much going in the order of the chapters. um, Seems like a vaguely logical organizational structure. Um, So, but the reason it's tricky is because like that actually goes back to that big point you just ended with. So, you know, they all, all the things go together. Can you start us off then thinking about sort of this combination of politics and law, and especially the narratives we tell about, are they in opposition to each other? What kinds of politics do we like? Who gets to make those kinds of decisions? One of the sort of big narratives around international law in Africa is around kind of the ICC, and who it goes after and who it doesn't, and whose voices it um, privileges and whose it doesn't. And there's obviously, I mean, a whole lot of research into the nuances of this that show that there are some genuine critiques to be made and also some political points to be scored. So can you help us understand to what extent is it accurate to say that the ICC has faced challenges in Africa because of things the ICC has done, blunders, tone deaf moves? Is is that where, is that kind of the source of challenges for the court in Africa? Can you help us complicate the picture?
1: Oh sure. Oh, comp- thank you for asking me to complicate because I was going to say, oh, it's, it's such a great question. I'm only going to like muddle it with my various complicated <laughs> ideas, um, but I want to say it's in a sense, it's kind of nothing, nothing so simple as all that. I think mm. that you can say that the ICC is tone deaf and it's made errors, like, sure. Um, But I think it's kind of interesting to start on the other side and ask, well, what does the ICC say about itself, right? How does the ICC understand its work in Africa? And in this way, the ICC is like a lot of international criminal law institutions. It starts with this idea of law and politics are separate. Law is pure. It's objective. When we talk about core crimes, we're talking about the kind of the kind of atrocity crimes that have no justification, right? There's no you can't say, well, I commit this genocide so that I you know, end my war quicker. Nothing permits you. No, no practicality allows you to engage in genocide. No practicality allows you to engage in torture. You want to argue that running your state works better when you torture people. That's going to be a losing argument under these concepts of international criminal law. So international criminal law proponents start there. And so they say, asking who the ICC tries is the wrong question, because it's important to notice what kinds of activities are impermissible can never have any justification. And then to make sure that the individuals who are perpetrating them are punished. And that's how we make a better world. And I probably overquote this, but this is the plaque that hangs inside the ICC towards a more just world. Like these guys, they're they're serious. They put it on a plaque. You walk by it when you walk in. So um, this idea that there's a utopia and that utopia is somehow encompassed in the principles and precepts of international criminal law drives this practice. So if you start there, then the political problems of, gosh, you seem to only try rebel leaders, don't you feel bad about that, um, it's kind of a non-starter because we're not supposed to ask in this pure land of law outside of politics, which by the way, is the only way that law stays non-corrupted, we're not supposed to ask who are these people, right? So I think in that way, we have a conversation that's actually, we have two sides that are talking past each other, right? So when one side says, it seems to us that you never seem to go after the sovereigns and you always take the rebels, And then you have the international criminal law proponents who say, we're building a better world by asserting that certain behaviors are never justifiable. And we take who we get and we build that world. And so we don't ask who these people are. Do you see what I mean? So I think that this talking past is a central part of of this story. And there's no way to, what do you say, like square that circle? Like you can't Uh come around. You can't make those ends meet. Mm.
0: I think, that's, I a think very, that's a very useful intervention into how we think about these narratives and kind of how, not just, oh, we should interrogate them, but here's a way to interrogate them, um, which is a very helpful intervention. But I'm going to make sure that I don't keep asking you about the one point and move on to another piece of the book. Um, otherwise I'm gonna spend all this time just asking about one piece and there's so many others. So let's talk about the ICTR, let's talk about Rwanda. Because as you said, it is normalized um, within area studies about kind of what happened after the genocide, what has been done by Kagame's regime, Um, but that isn't necessarily connected even to specialist histories about the ICTR itself, right? Much less kind of in a broader conversation. So can you connect them for us? How did the ICTR come to be not just kind of happening in the same country as a consolidation of a very specific kind of power. But in fact, the ICTR is part of that method of consolidation. How?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so this, I think, would be part of that that story that I want to tell about sophisticated political manipulations on the part of African politicians. And I guess this i I hope is um, is in addition to the narratives we have about how Africa runs. I think I have at some point in time in the book, I talk about, you know what is what is a Western perspective on Africa? because if you look at these international institutions, that is challenged, right? there is there's is a sophisticated, good manipulation by those in power of these international institutions which exist because they're supposed to be somehow objective and not subjected to local interests, local power actors, but they absolutely get captured by local power actors and put to their own use. And and so um, Kagame's Rwanda is this example, and, and you see this with the ICTR, where there's only one kind of case that can be prosecuted. And it's a case, I apologize, I cannot make my... Um, email turn off. Um, It's a case that is, it's a case against the, the Tutsi genocide that doesn't include any kind of other victims. That's just not part of the narrative. And partly that's, it's, um, it's much easier. Like it's it's a like it's a complicated. These are it's a complicated series of groups. It's names that Westerners are unfamiliar with. It's a history that Westerners don't know. Kagami, who himself grows up in Uganda, right? It's 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 complex. So um, simplifying the narrative makes it in a sense e- easier. And the ICTR is absolutely it's captured and it's utilized to do that. And ultimately, again, this goes back to the jurists, the international criminal law, uh, people working in international criminal law. Um, those there's a, there's a perspective on that that says, as long as we're um, actually insisting that there's been, we're finding atrocity crimes, we're prosecuting atrocity crimes, we're doing good, like we are making the world a better place. We don't Need to ask against whom because that's not part of that would be political and that would not be legal. And then you have you need you know you need materials to prosecute those. So Kagame's in charge and he's providing the materials. So and courts don't have they, they don't really have many police officers. They they don't have these international courts really have a problem of enforcement. So they they require cooperation. So you can. And you might ask for something, but you get something else, and then you prosecute that thing. So this is, again, this is part of the story that I want to tell of the of the way in which, all of the interests converge. The institution, like the ICTR, like the ICTY, like the ICC, those institutions only work when they're working. They need cases. They need people who are defendants. They need to bring cases against them. They need material proof against those people. Without those things, it's just a bunch of people sitting around collecting paychecks waiting for something to happen. And it's an institution that's not making jurisprudence, that's not advancing what it is that we think about atrocity crimes. So, everyone loses when there's inactivity and everyone wins when there's activity. And of course, this everyone is a very cynical everyone because in the case of Rwanda, it's the, the power brokers who have a story about who are the victims and who are the perpetrators. And then they they use the institution, they instrumentalize the institution because the institution wins when it has work. And the institution can say, well, we'll, we'll get to these others tomorrow. But what happened in the case of the ICTR is it was shut down and shut out before that ever happened. By then, Kagame had consolidated power, and that has not taken place. So then you have the consolidation of an authoritarian regime where it's actually illegal to put forward other forms, other narratives. Um, yeah, so did I answer the question? You did, absolutely. Okay. Good. And I guess you you helped
0: answer part of the next question, which is, is the fact of it closing when it did, is the fact of kind of needing someone in power to help Uh, facilitate, as you said, the the necessary bits of making the court work and not just sit around. Is that why or part of why you think Kagame continues to enjoy the support of Western states?
1: Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I, you know, I, it's so interesting to me. I do not know why Kagame enjoys the support of Western states. And we just cannot underscore that support enough because not only is Rwanda successful in our scare quotes, but run on Western money, on, on Western donations. But we now also in Denmark, where I work, in the UK, um, we're talking about sending uh, refugees, and actually you know recognized refugees to Rwanda. There are deals being made with Rwanda as a sort of safe third country where... Um, Re- refugees who are recognized by European countries might be sent, and and how this has come about, I, I think, is uh, is is interesting, and I and I don't I don't know the answer to that. Um, the again, the area scholars, the people who know more than I do, they uh, they often point to like how clean and modern Kigali is, you know, so. Authoritarians are good at like keeping the streets clean, and if you're in Kigali, everything seems to work, and you can get like a cafe latte, and you can like get on the Wi-Fi, and so everything feels super modern. And people don't go outside of the capital, so they don't see how things are outside. That's what the area scholars say that explains what this is. Um, but again, it seems to me that that Kagame has done a very good job understanding what his where the levers are that he can move, uh, and has and has done that has done that well. So his is a story of effective political manipulation. But the reason why we want to tell this story is we just kind of, I think, again, we go back to what's the purpose of international law? If international law stands separate from politics, it loses so much. So it's not local So it's expensive. It's often clueless. It doesn't understand local subtleties. Uh, You need translation. So there's so many things that are lost and cannot be reclaimed by trying to make something legible to internationals when you bring them in. So if you're going to do all those hard things, then what do you get in return? And the promise is that we have a shared understanding about what Rule of law, statecraft looks like. What does a you know a rechtstat? What is the state of rights? A rule of law state? What is it? And this is where we've been really disappointed in the work of the ICTR. And this is where Kagame has quite simply he has outfoxed those who work with him.
0: Hmm. But this isn't the only place that exactly those conflicts and tensions are between kind of the idea of what is a well-run court and what is international law for. It's meant to do these things with the quote over the door. But then, hang on, there's on-the-ground politics that are very real um, and don't necessarily nicely fit into that. You've just described it in the context of Rwanda, but the Chad chapter in the book tells a very, in many ways, quite similar story. So I'm wondering if you can tell us what happened in this case when we see kind of those two things clashing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, and it also, of course, could you, this is obviously, this is the story I feel is essential to tell. So when we find all these parallels, you know, I, I guess I am inviting all the other scholars out there to write back and be like, you've completely misunderstood this. This is the fun part about having these conversations. But yeah, that Chad, in the sense... Is something very similar. There we have a, an institution which is successful because it runs. And when I say, when I use the example, people don't die, like the ICC, unfortunately, has been plagued by dead witnesses. I mean, people who cooperate with the ICC, bad things end up happening. And the again, it's because you have some investigators from The Hague who show up in, you know, Northern Uganda. Ooh, I wonder who those guys are. They might be here investigating war crimes from The Hague. Oh, did I see someone so talk to them? Like, it, it's not, they're not very subtle. And, um, and and even the, who The Hague employs, the ICC, when you talk to some of the people who do that work, they come from police investigations domestically. And I, and I just, I wonder does that translate? Like, does that work the same? So uh, you just have sort of many problematic cases um, at the ICC where where you cannot accept witness statements, where the proof that's been gathered by the ICC is really problematic. And this is one of the things that the that the investigators in the hybrid tribunal um, that operated in Senegal the chambre extraordinaire africaine the extraordinary african chamber which was set up to try Saint-Abré and others under it was set up to try people responsible for, responsible for atrocities in Able's regime, it ended up only getting Able. Um, but one of the things that I found when I was doing interviews and I, I went back and forth to Senegal for four years and I, I wrote another book with two other people, edited a book where we sort of went through the um we, we use these first person accounts which I'm I'm very proud of as kind of an empirical survey. It's called the President Hunt trial. So if you wanted to kind of dig in and look at what the people on the ground say, I reference that book. That's um so based on what I had learned in that process, um, one of the things that was interesting in relation to the ICC had to do with how investigators said, you know, we're not that different. Like we go into Chad, we get it. We have the same. We we have a French system. It works the same way. We're used to asking similar questions. We can talk to their magistrates and we understand each other. So when we have their magistrates doing uh, doing interviews, we know the kind of things that they ask. We know how to manage that information. So the translation costs in that sense, and here I don't mean just linguistic, but I mean sort of structural, institutional, were lower. But again, um, so you had this court that institutionally in those ways, it was cheap and it was safe. um, And in all those ways, it worked. And that's really something that should be celebrated because it doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to look very far to see that it doesn't have to be that way. But the larger question of, okay, if there's a rule of law, concept structure that insists that when you commit atrocities, when you're, you're responsible for atrocities, they've happened on your watch, then you're going to be held criminally liable. That that rule of law idea can't only be applied to people who are no longer a pow- in power. That should be applied universally. The idea behind the rule of law is that no one doesn't, no one has immunity from it, right? There these atrocity crimes, because they cannot be in any way, um, Permitted or excused, then there there just can't be immunity. And here, what happened in the in the Abre case was, as the investigations went up the chain and started asking the then president of Chad, who was be who had replaced Abre, had beaten him and replaced him. Hey, it seems like a lot of the crimes that Abre is accused of continued in Chad under your regime. Maybe we should look at those. Then those investigations were shut down. So once again, we have to decide what's the takeaway here? What's the celebration? So there's an institutional celebration, a court that worked without endangering people who cooperated with it. That's good. But in terms of the rule of law, what did we, what's our takeaway? And there again, you can see that this is my, in a sense, it's my message. It's the, the reason to do this was to insist that there's one rule that all are subject to. And that's not what you get with this court.
0: Yeah, definitely a tricky precedent um, to have and a tricky precedent to go, yay, celebration. It's like, hmm, okay, that that raises some questions. Um, All right, I want to move away a little bit from kind of the similarities we've been talking about so far between Rwanda and Chad and ask you about uh, one of your other cases, South Sudan, which I think has a great example of something that, no matter how much you do or don't know about international law, would raise eyebrows at um, if made more known to the general public. So that in and of itself is, I think, a useful contribution. The fact that I'm referring to is that both parties of the many years long now South Sudanese conflict keep pressing for a tribunal. They keep asking for one, even though maybe especially because it doesn't seem particularly likely to happen why are they asking for it? And what does the fact that they keep asking for it tell us about this bigger question that you're asking of what is international law for?
1: Mm, yeah, thanks. And again, like here's where I'm, you know, in some ways out of my league, I don't, I can't, I don't know. So all I can do is sort of theorize as as I and I try and sort of take us in the chapter and tell us some of the things I can say, right? I can say, uh how this comes about, um, who's asking what it looks like, how it changes, what's the situation as we know it at the time of that writing um, in terms of governance in South Sudan. But my best guess would be that this is part of the rhetorical narrative of who's who's playing in a legal way, right? So there's something um, very convincing. And, and again, if we go back to Rwanda and we look at Kagame, right? Like one of the reasons that Kagame is able to, is able to play with uh, Western countries is, you know, is able to, as is, is part of these negotiations can be considered as a safe third party state is a, is a notion that somehow Rwanda has been transformed to a rule of law state, Like that that's what international justice did there. And so uh, obviously, if you look too closely, I, I, I think that that, that doesn't bear out, but that's the narrative. So that, States want a piece of this reputational power, which is uh, is the the power of using law as opposed to other forms of of um, blunt political interest, um, and then I think. Because um, there's blunt political interest, probably both sides are not too concerned about their capacity to bluntly politically influence whatever might happen if the court were actually to occur. Sort of like we see with the Abra Tribunal, right? Where Chad was the major donor to that tribunal and could could insist, you know, Chad believes in the rule of law and human rights and this human rights uh uh, offender uh, Chad wants to bring them to justice, and so that is what that is why Chad is supporting this tribunal, oh except we 're not against chad 's current leader, absolutely not our leader at the time since deceased um, so I think that it's part of that reputational argument, so you get to try and gain from being the pro Law pro rule of law pro international standards you know what used to be called in the most delightful colonizing way you know the standards of civilized nations right we enter we enter this it's no longer acceptable language but that's the club that we're entering and we're not very concerned about what it'll be like to be in that club because we know that we can influence things in whatever way we need to.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Definitely some interesting assumptions and legacies playing out here. Um, maybe not where people would expect. So I I found that a very useful addition to this book. Um, Speaking of useful additions, this chapter I want to ask you about next is perhaps the one that I knew least about going in and almost felt bad about that. I'm like, oh, but this is the kind of optimistic one. And that's the one I don't know about? Goodness. Um, So you mentioned it a little bit earlier, the East African Trade Court. Can you tell us more about why it might be the more optimistic, the more promising uh, laboratory, even though we might not expect a trade court to be the one taking on human rights cases in
1: Africa? Yeah. Yeah, so this kind of goes, like like I said, and again, I kind of want to, I, I, you know, I feel, I feel the gaze of the critical upon me, like as a caveat, <laughs> right? Like, you know, we who are like pro-human rights, we're like, a human rights court, it's so good. But it, it really... It still begs these questions of well, what happens when that human rights court starts to find rights that I don't think are so rightsy, you know, like, am I, am I going to be just as happy with that court suddenly deciding that it has, I don't even know what it could decide it has jurisdiction over and then starts ruling against rights. Um, however, that said, one of the challenges for courts to act outside of, like in parallel to, as alternate sources of power in Africa, has to do with whether or not countries accede to the jurisdiction of those courts. So you have this um, African Court of Human and People's Rights, a really interesting institution, um, taking really interesting cases, working, um, again, a, a, a young institution doing interesting things. However, The value of a human rights court is that it allows citizens to bring cases against their states. Hey, state, uh, you know, the social contract says that you, this government, is legitimated by by its relationship to me, and that relationship has been sullied by these series of acts, and I did not get redress in the state. I take it supranationally so that some objective third-party judge can take a look at this. But in order for that to be possible, states have to permit their citizens to go to these courts. And one of the things you see with the African Court of Human and People's Rights is many states are simply not signing on. They're members of the court, but they don't allow their citizens to bring cases. So there you see states trying to, I think, again, my my guess at this is, take some of the reputational gains i support a human rights court we are a rule of law state look we support human rights but it's really pesky when citizens start making complaints about the policies enacted against them we don't want to have to deal with that and so the east african court of justice by determining that it could it did have jurisdiction over human rights cases, because you cannot engage in trade without human rights. And here it's in kind of good company, right? The European Union has something not entirely dissimilar, right? There's there's no trade between democracy without rights. By making this broad interpretation, giving itself a jurisdiction, it managed to capitalize on the fact that lots of countries actually want uh, trade matters to be settled supranationally so trade is is something that countries can they can see the value in citizens being able to be involved there's there's again there's a there's a kind of direct economic benefit that can come to countries and then the court expands that builds on the back of that to allow other kinds of cases so again it's a really it's a it's a clever, creative expansion. It's And as I go through the, in the chapter, you can read how the court does it. It's not insane. It is creative, right? So, and I think it's always um, it's always lovely to see how courts construct possibilities for themselves. No,
0: it's, it's absolutely fascinating to see it. So I'm so glad that this got added. And in fact, I'd like to almost ask you to kind of expand on it as a penultimate question of in terms of watching this construction, seeing what develops from it, what are some courts or cases that you think we should maybe keep an eye on to see how this combination of international law and politics continues to evolve in Africa?
1: Mm, okay. Well, so again, I think the East African, sorry, the, East Africa, the African Court of Human and People's Rights, uh, it's a really interesting institution. More and more research is coming out. When I went to Tanzania a few years ago, I mean, the, the judges in that court and the, the clerks in that court were super generous it was it was it was basically open and i just kind of sat around and people talked to me and it was really it was just really fascinating to sort of the ethnography of seeing how people work and how cases happen. Um, so, that case, I think that court will get busier. And I think there's, especially for like young international law researchers, people who want to spend some time on the ground, uh, I think that's a fantastic court. I write very briefly in the conclusion about the Malibu Protocol, the Pan African Lawyers Union, which is also situated um, in Arusha, or I think it's got its headquarters in Arusha. Um, it's been working really diligently at trying to expand a notion of what international law would cover. And there they started with this concept of, well, what uh, what do treaties cover? Because if we have a treaty, then there must be international interest. And so then if we have um, a court, an international court, then we would want that court to deal with potentially any topic on which we have a treaty. So there's been an expansion to consider the questions of like of corruption or environmental damage. Like, could an international court, an African court take on those topics as well? And I think I I really I think that's super interesting. And I also but I really appreciate the the impetus behind it. Like, well, what kinds of things should come before a court? Because, again, if we come back to international criminal law, kind of, you know, my my clearly my the, the topic that I that I adore or love to hate or how you want to say it I mean it is um it's it it springs out of the second world war and it springs out of a of a pretty of a pretty imbalanced take on how to understand the atrocities of that war how to understand like guilt and violence in that war right how to make it how to make only certain things problematic and Even though we eventually add a genocide convention, you see in the Nuremberg Tribunals, you see a lot of things overlooked or misunderstood. And so this this move to try and think, well, if there's a treaty, then there must be a need to control this. So there should probably be a court that thinks about this treaty. I think that's a really interesting approach to how we imagine what international law could and should cover. And again, comes back to this question about, well, what could the benefit of a supranational court be? What do we... What do we gain by this institution that doesn't have local knowledge, but which should, at least in principle, have some kind of objectivity over the topic? And so I think that that so the Pan-African Lawyers Union, watch those guys.
0: Those are some very cool suggestions of what to watch. Thank you very much for highlighting them for us. As a final question. um, I almost, given the sort of saga you talked us through at the beginning of putting this book together, I almost am like, ooh, I shouldn't make her go back into that headspace. But I am very curious always about what to look for in the future, as evidenced by my last question. So on a more direct level, um, what are you working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic, anything you'd like to highlight in that realm?
1: Oh, thanks so much. You know, it's it feels like a it feels like Christmas. You want me to talk about what I <laughs> what I'm doing now? It's too kind. Um, so I have been working on terror law. So I've been uh, observing terror trials and looking at the question of so. Europeans who commit terror, so people who joined ISIS, etc. And I've been writing on that and the revocation, We were especially in Denmark, we've started revoking citizenship. And then in concert with that, but it's all driven by this question of who belongs, right? Who makes the state? And then getting back to some of the same questions that are really um, are driving the Justice Laboratory book, then, okay, what is the state and how is the state constrained by law? What role can law play in that And those interests have led me to my current book project, which is about Colombia. So in Colombia, you have some pretty fascinating statecraft questions going on following the 2016 peace accords. Um, And so there there's a there's a peace agreement and the peace agreement sets up a series of institutional promises. One of them is a, a restorative justice organ. You can call it a court. It's called the JEP, the Jurisdiction Speciale de Paz. Um, and that institution, which sits in Bogota but works regionally, is creating, it's looking at patterns of criminality. So they have like a 100 sociologists that they employ on one of their floors who look to see what are the, when we understand, when we look at violence in Colombia, can we find... Uh, certain things that characterize that violence. And based on those patterns, they have constructed a series of cases. And then they're using this idea called macro criminality, which originates from this German jurist, to try and decide how liability should be assessed for those patterns of crime that they locate. And then If you cooperate with the court, then there's a restorative justice. And we're now right now waiting to hear what those sanctions will look like. And they're imagined to be, again, restorative sanctions. So in case number one, which is about the FARC and kidnapping there, the idea was if you cooperate with the tribunal and you or with HEP and you say what you know, Uh, In this case, it looks a lot like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, right? It borrows some of these ideas. Then you'll be eligible for this restorative sanction, which could be somehow trying to address a harm. So maybe you build a school or build a road. and, And how that will be carried out, how you can ensure the safety of the people who are going to be subject to these sanctions, that's getting resolved right now and one so there's a, there's just a zillion things that are fascinating about that in Colombia but I think the big thing that I find so interesting is the willingness of Colombia to engage in kind of big greenfield exciting new structural ideas and so I say this as an american who now has lived in europe for 30 years very frustrated over for example our inability to address the migration if you want to call it crisis the number of people who die tra- seeking to come to europe like we just we just don't have any great ideas we just people keep dying and and it doesn't it seems like there could be many ways that we might address this we don't and then you look at a country like colombia and it's it's really trying brand new things and it it might not work. So one of one of the things that my my book looks at is it it looks at or it's okay at this point it's a book project. So the thing <laughs> that my book project is working on, mm-hmm. what I'm developing, is this idea of non-repetition, which is which is a right that's recognized by the Inter American Court. It's not a right we're very familiar with. It's, it doesn't exist as a right in that sense uh, in European human rights law but what might this write this i think is another way of understanding the the responsibility that the state has toward its citizens so in a sense it's just another way of stating the social contract but with the right with a citizen's capacity to insist that a state not repeat its past errors um it's it's possible that some of the jurisprudence coming out of this the special court in colombia might not withstand constitutional scrutiny right so there's Mm -hmm. so many challenges but there's still this like there's real creativity and real engagement so it's not just that the institution is engaging but there's real conversation. So when I go to Columbia now, I've been so fortunate as to be several, to go several times and everybody, I've never talked to anyone who doesn't, who doesn't know what I'm like, I'm studying this institution and what it means. And everyone knows about it, has an opinion about it. You can pick up books, you go to a bookstore. So you have this level of, of conversation, this, Real like political salience of law, legal institutions and law as a possible way of trying to resolve political impasses. That's one way of putting the terrible violence, you know, 70 years of war in Colombia. So I think that um, is another again, it all comes back to this question of how can law help solve the state. But I really think that we, we certainly where I am in Europe, we, we sort of, we ignore South America and we ignore it at our peril. There's really amazing things happening. So I'm hmm. taking my focus to Colombia. Well, I'm glad that it's a book project, because that means it'll be a book. And then we
0: can have you (laughs) back and you can tell us even more about it.
1: So oh, so wonderful. Yes. Yes, we will look
0: forward to that. But in the meantime, while you're off actually, you know, doing that work, listeners can read the book on Africa that we've been discussing until this point, titled The Justice Laboratory International Law in Africa. Shirsten, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you very, very much for having me.